0: Amen. So I was reading this week about uh, the season of Advent. I don't know how familiar you are with it, but it's it's not something that you find in the new, in the Bible, right, Advent. You never find it in there. So I was reading about where it came from and what the practices were and all that sort of thing, like in the early church, you know, because it started, they think, around 300, 400 BC, A.D., uh, AD, and how it came to be and, and what it was like back then. And guess what I found out? Back then, it was very different than it was today, than it Right? Like today, in the church, what, I mean you, you know, we, we light a candle, we have some readings, we, we pray some prayers, that's, and we go on with service. Back in the day, and I mean way back in the day, it was very different. matter of fact, as I read uh, some of their practices, I was struck by their attention to the words in Scripture that refer to Christmas, what we know as Christmas, the coming of Christ the coming of the the Messiah, that fact and the emotion, the, the reality of fear. I don't know how many of you think see this Christmas tree and are struck by fear. Right? How many of us? None. Right? That's not a thought that ever... I had to think, like, I've never thought Christmas and fear in the same sentence. I've never put them there. And yet, that was the reality for the early church when they were preparing for Christmas, preparing for the coming of Christ, was fear. Just so think about it. When you first came to faith and you thought about the Lord coming back, it was like, oh my goodness, I better get right with God, right? That's what we kind of said. Like, i got to get myself right because I'm doomed without him, right? There was a sense of fear one time in our lives and in the early church. That was the predomin- that was the dominant message, was one of fear at the coming of Christ. I thought it was interesting. I, I I felt more than interesting about it. I, I was convicted by it. I was really convicted, you, you, convicted in a good way, right? You know what I mean? Like, like when you find something, when you discover something that, that you needed to be there all along, you find the keys or whatever, you know, you feel like, ah, finally, you know, that kind of sense of, that's the way I felt. I was moved in that moment to pray. Lord, help me to see how how grand, how epic this Christmas is. Like, don't let me take it for granted, right? That was my prayer. And within a couple of minutes, I was back to scrolling through Twitter. I don't know if you're a Twitter follower, you know, user or not, but maybe it's Facebook or maybe it's, maybe it's just work that, that you do. I don't know. But you... Have you ever done that when you're really troubled by something, something really disturbed? You saw something on the news, a story that, oh, man, it got your blood boiling. And then a couple of minutes later, you're like, I wonder what we're having for dinner. You ever been there? Like that, that fury, I mean, it, maybe it drove you to pray like, oh, Lord Jesus, please, you've got to do something. And then a breath later, it was gone. You ever been there? I think we all have, right? It's, it's called Apathy. That emotion is, or that lack of emotion, is called apathy. It's like I, I feel, oh, this really bothers me, but not anymore, not so much. I'm over it, right? I'm over it. That's that, that, that's this the season of our world is. You might call it the eh, season, <laughs> like eh, whatever, whatever. It's a culture of apathy. That's running. It's, it's in our world. It, that there's a lack of general, lack of interest, a lack of passion, a lack of concern for pretty much anything. You noticed it? I mean, have you kind of felt it? Like like people just aren't, there's something different, and it's not really good. I mean, the only thing we get upset about is when people disagree with us, right? Because I'm right, they're wrong. So we all go vote, but, and we don't talk about it. Well, if that's you, if you struggle with apathy, particularly spiritual apathy, then i got good news for you. Or actually, I don't. Malachi does. The book of Malachi that we're working our way through today uh, is one of the minor prophets. Minor again because they're short, right? It's the last book of the Old Testament. It's the, the book of transition. It's the, if you go to the Gospel of Matthew and you turn left, just a couple of pages, it's right there. It's four chapters long. It's pretty short. But it's a unique book in that it concludes... The Old Testament. It, it, it draws to a close the Old Testament. It kind of wraps things up, and, and much like, you know, if you're a Star Wars fan, how Episode 3 left a lot of questions that it didn't answer, right? It, how it kind of left you hanging. You know how those cliffhangers always work? And, you know, I remember when uh, when I was a kid growing up watching Batman, I said, like, tune in tomorrow, same bad time same Bat-channel. And it was like, why are they always like that? They get you right to the point where he's going to die in the... the Things gonna fall on his head, and it's falling. And tune in tomorrow. What? That's the way Malachi leaves us. That's the way. He le- so Malachi. So, so who is he? Verse one, chapter one of the, the book of Malachi begins by by saying, it's "Written by a man named Malachi." Well, who's Malachi? We don't know. That's all we know about him, actually. That's all we know about him. We do know that. We, we don't even know if that's his, that's really a purse. Because the name Malachi, which is, you know, appropriate, I guess. The name Malachi means my messenger. The messenger of the Lord. So, the word of the Lord to Israel through the messenger of the Lord. That's what that first verse reads. So, he's God's messenger. When, when did he serve? When did he live? We don't really know exactly because he's not real specific. He doesn't give us any concrete Things that are happening, telling us who the kings were and anything like that. But what we we can discern by by some of the things he references in the book is that he wrote after the prophet Ezra because the temple's been rebuilt. The temple is the temple's in operation. So he we know it was after it, that he follows Ezra. We know that the city of Jerusalem has been rebuilt. So we know he follows the, the prophet Nehemiah. We know that he's that he's in Jerusalem in the city of Jerusalem. We know the prophet the temple is operational. We assume that theologians kind of figured that that it's probably been a hundred years after Ezra. So that puts us in around the about the middle 5th century B.C., which is around 450 B.C. You know, B.C. goes backwards. So uh, he's, he's around 450 B.C. We're not really sure, but that's when we kind of think it was going on. It's been a hundred years. The temple's been there. Everybody's been worshiping. People are coming. The people have come back. The Israelites have come back to Jerusalem. I mean, it's it was a great day in the in the in the people's lives just a few years ago, right? Everybody can remember it. There was a spiritual flame was on fire. But now that flame has become a flicker. The problems that were existed in Israel before, (laughs) they're still there. Corruption, injustice, poverty, all these problems are still present in the people. People are still and yet, now, they're like, eh, whatever, it's that kind of life, apathy. Malachi is, is a unique book in that it's written in, there are six disputes, six arguments, you might want to say, between God and the people. And God, being God, he speaks for himself and he speaks for the people, which kind of makes it kind of interesting. God's having a conversation with himself and Malachi is writing it all down, and but. So God, God brings up a point, and the, then he says, and this is what you have to say about it, right? But this is why I bring it up, God says. So he, he, he makes a point, then the people respond, and then God lets them have it again and again and again. All of that to be said, though, is that this is a message of hope for the apathetic. There, there's hope for the apathetic. So if you find yourself here today, or you know somebody here today who, or, who doesn't really have a sense of, like, why? What's, I don't get anything out of this. I'm not. I'm not connected to this. It's like this is meaningless. I don't even want to. Like if that's you, if, it's, if you've ever been there, if you know somebody who's just purposeless, this is a book for you, because it closes with hope for the apathetic. But before we get there, let's kind of go work our way through it. Let's start with what brings apathy into our lives, into your life. What are the some things that force apathy upon you. I, I thought one was was when we get overwhelmed with information, right? We just get, like this time of year, everybody's asked, everybody's showing us pictures of suffering animals, SPCA wants your money, you know, the, the people in foreign countries want your money to feed the poor and the starving kids in India, and, and it's everywhere you turn, I mean, it seems like, that everybody's wanting a donation, that, oh my goodness, you just kind of get overwhelmed with the need in the world. There's so much going wrong, what, like, and you just kind of get burned out. You you get emotionally numb to all the crises around the world. Have you ever been emotionally numb like that? Find yourself there? Yeah, that, that's that's how I, that's how I think this apathy kind of roots its way into our lives. Is that we just kind of get oh, another one? Really? Click, turn it off. Second one. So when we're helpless to make real change, you know, we see this in schools. I think a lot these days. Um, I'm, I spend a lot more time at the high school, and I. I know there are a lot of kids in our high schools that, that are really suffering academically. And what does that do when you? When you well, some of you I remember. How did geometry class feel, right? When you couldn't prove the theorem, right? You're like, oh, whatever. I don't even care, right? When you can't do the thing that you're called, when it's when it's just so far out of reach, I'm helpless to, to do anything about it. I just don't care, right? What happens in our lives when the problems we face bigger than us, or we can't do anything to affect change, then we just, okay, it's easier just not to care about it, right? Third one, being blessed and cursed with comfort. We're blessed and cursed with comfort. We are, all of us are. If you're, if you're hearing my voice in person or recorded, then, then you are blessed with comfort, right? We have more than we could ever consume, and yet we keep shopping for more, shopping for more, and shopping for more. We, 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 we spend so much time focused on ourselves that, frankly, we, we, don't, we don't have the energy to focus on others. So we kind of let apathy into our lives. But God, fortunately, because God is good and God does what God does, He doesn't let it just linger. He takes the time to call it out in, the, in us when He sees it in His people. And he does that in the through Malachi here for the people of Israel in verse in verse two of chapter one he says I loved you says the Lord but you ask how have you loved us well and God responds well it's not Esau Jacob's brother yet I loved Jacob but Esau I've hated and I've turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals that were you know, I, I loved Jacob and I hated Esau. Maybe, maybe that's too strong for you. Think of, I loved Jacob and I didn't love Esau as much. I, I, I didn't approve of Esau. I didn't choose Esau. See that's what God is getting at. I chose you. I said, "Oh, have you loved us? I chose you. I made you mine." That's what God is saying. they're like, eh, how did you love us?" You haven't really loved us. Look at the, look at us. Look at the thing. Look at the situation we're in. The poverty, the, the destruction, the the corruption that's going on, the injustices all around us. How have you loved us? God says, "I provided for you. I've protected you. I've blessed you." But Esau, I mean, his people became the Edomites. I mean, sure they. They built a the lot, and they were pretty prosperous, but, but they were crushed. And God goes on to say in, in verse uh, 4 and 5 that, that they're going to rebuild, and they'll be crushed again. And they'll rebuild, and they'll be crushed again. Why? Because my favor is on you. You are my people. They're going to struggle. You're my people. Apathy, you see, was revealed in their hearts. How'd you, how'd you love this guy? How have you loved us, God? How have you loved us? Second way apathy was revealed is in their worship, is their approach to worship. It says in verse 6 of chapter 1 A son honors his father and a slave his master. If I'm a father, where is the honor due to me? If I'm a master, where is the respect due to me? says the Lord Almighty. It's you priests that show contempt for my name. But but you ask, and, and he's speaking for him here. He says, How have we shown contempt for your name, God? by offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how has that defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. Have we, how have we shown contempt, God? He says, he says by the way you, you worship me, or don't worship me. He says, you know, you, the law prescribed how, how to give all, your offerings to God, right? And the law is pretty clear. You give first fruits. You give unblemished lambs you give the ones that are free of disease and defect. And yet that's exact that's what they were doing. Was they were giving the since times were tough, right? And it was easy to kind of turn a blind eye to the people just you know just okay, just give something. You don't have to give your best. You don't have to give anything that's really pure and perfect. Just just give something. The priests were like, "Yeah, okay. See, their, their apathy was revealed in their approach to God, their, their approach in worship. That they didn't really care that much. They would bring the blind, the diseased, the lame animals, the ones that aren't good for anything else. But we'll give that one to God. It's like when somebody, you know, collected clothes to send to, uh, you know, a part of the world or part of the country where there's been a devastation or whatever. You know, I know a lot of folk who clean out their closets, send out the old stuff that they never wear again, no way, ever. They ain't worn since 1960. They're going to send that down there, right? Like, why? Why don't you do that? Like, why not just throw it away? Because that's all somebody else is going to do with it. But no, we'll, we'll give that. God says, no. God says, no, that's, that's, not what, that's not what I've asked you to do. So I've asked you to give your best. And when you don't, it reveals your heart and your worship. I love verse 13. Oh, I thought I had it, but I don't. <clears throat> he says, And you will say, What a burden, and you sniff contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty, when you bring injured or lame or diseased animals in their sacrifices. Should I accept them from your hands? When, when you can't even, you don't even pay your taxes, you don't even pay the governor. This, this stuff, but you're going to give it to God, he says. he says. He says, what if you approached your worship the way you approach the mayor, your taxes? What if you approached your worship the way you approached your spouse or your neighbor? What if you approached God the same as you do everyone else? He says, no, that's not what you do. Right? When somebody, when somebody special is coming over to the house, what do you do? You clean up, don't you? Most of you do. Miss <laughs> Donna won't even let you in the house. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> no. But no, we, yeah, you got to take shoes off. That's right, you've got to take <laughs> shoes off. Why? Because it, it's special, right? If the governor's coming over, if you're going to the White House for dinner, I don't care who the president is, you're going to put on something pretty fancy. Right? God says, what, and what about me? Who am I? Who am I? He says, you, you approach worship like it's a burden. <laughs> you ever done that? I'll be the first to raise my hand and say, yeah, I have. I have. I'm approach worship like I like, Sunday? Again? <laughs> yep, every seven days, Gary. <laughs> it comes around every week. Ah, gotta go to church again. I was planning on taking, I was planning on. You see, apathy is revealed just like that. Just like that. As though I come to worship for me. That's not why we, that's not why I do any of it. It's not why God calls us to do any of it. We do it for him. We do it for him. But the way we approach worship can reveal our apathy. If it's in us, it'll be revealed in our worship. A third way apathy is seen is in their refusal to live according to the law. In their refusal to live according to the law, he says in verse 10 of chapter 2, do we not have one father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another? He says, Judah has been unfaithful. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem and Judea, or Judah, has desecrated the sanctuary of the Lord by marrying women who worship a foreign god. As the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord remove him from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings an offering to the Lord Almighty. Okay, so what are the people doing here? They say, "How, how do we profane the covenant, God? How is this such a problem? Well, he's calling them out, particularly the priests, Because they would divorce the Jewish women in order to marry women of the surrounding tribes who worship foreign gods. He said they would would divorce the people they were in a covenant relationship with, with God, in order to marry someone else that they were more attracted to. God says, no, 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 love her. Love her. That's what you're supposed to do. Because this is a betrayal of a covenant of God with his people us to remember that the way we love one another is a reflection of our love for God if you're in a covenant relationship a husband and wife, the way you love each other is a reflection of your love for God Uh, that may be too heavy for some of you but that's, that's what it is it's a covenant relationship when you hurt each other, you hurt a covenant partner you betray God's covenant. You don't care. You don't care enough. And then God begins, what do we do about it? Verse 17, he says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. <laughs> How do we do that? How do we make God tired? He says, all, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or, or, or you keep asking, God, where is justice? Where, where is the justice that you promise you're going to bring? See how they're crying out for justice when they're doing things that are unjust. Crazy how you ever find yourself there, that you complain about things that other people are doing, and when you stop to think, well, I'm part of that too. How have we wearied the Lord? He says, He says, there's a day coming. God says, He says, you you complain about all the wrongness in the world. He says, but what you need to be focused on is doing what's right. He said, because I'm going to come, I'm sending a judge who's going to discern, who's going to, He's going to judge the, the good from the bad. He says, don't just complain, but focus. Focus on doing what's right. Doing what's right. Many things in life will catch your attention. Few things in life will capture your heart. I don't know if you found that to be true or not. <laughs> What what captures your heart? What captures your heart? This is the key to apathy. Is allowing God to speak to us like what do I how is he how does he speak to me? Where do you see the needs of the world? The needs of where do you see what's wrong in the world? Where do you see it? Is it unborn kids? Single parents? Is it racial injustice or human trafficking? Cancer? Suffering. The kids needing adoption, fostering. Students or seniors. Missions overseas. Mental illness. Addictions to porn or drugs or alcohol. What, what is it when you see it, you're like, God, that can't stand. It's not that I can't stand it, but that can't continue. I've got to do something about that. What is it that you see and God sparks your heart. You get that holy discontent. Focus on that. Focus on that. Focus on what you can do, what you're passionate about. Oftentimes, I think we have a we have the spiritual attention of a nap. You know, we just kind of like flight around and, and we do a little here and do a little there and do a little here and do a little over there, and we we feel like we're doing a lot because we're really busy. But in reality, as we look, if we once we look back, we're like, not that much changed. It's because we weren't invested anywhere. We were just kind of flighting along. And God wants us to invest ourselves somewhere. You don't have to, you're like, well, I don't know. I don't know what, you don't have to come up with the idea. You don't have to lead it. You can be a part of it. You can be a part of what God's already doing through someone else. You can just come alongside of them and help them. Be a part of what God is doing doing what's right. Jesus was focused. Jesus was focused. He came that that they may have life, right? He came for those who are not righteous to make them holy, to set captives free, to seek and to save the lost. He says, you want to be a part of my kingdom? He didn't say, okay, well, well, just send me a postcard, fill out the connection card, no, he didn't do that. He said, give up everything you got and follow me. And you know what people did? They, they did that. Why? Because he was passionate. He was passionate about something. He knew what he was there for. He invited people to come and be a part. What is it for you? What is it that you feel God is like saying, okay, apathy is a struggle, but, but there's something that sparks your heart. What is it? That passion invites people in. When you care about something, it invites people in. People want to be a part of it. For me, I'll tell you that, that the church has been what I care most about. I, I grew up not caring. I grew up in the eh, generation, right, not caring about the church. But when I when I did, when, I, when he woke me up one day, man, I want everybody to experience what I've experienced. I want, I want you all to experience it you've been coming to church your whole life and you've never experienced that being alive in Christ, I want you to know that. I want you to know the identity that God has given you to live out as part of the church. It's huge. It's what you were made for. You were created to be a part of this family. We have a choice. We can can focus on an excuse, or we can focus on the passion that he's given us. Passion that always finds a way. Passion always finds a way. Verse 6 of chapter 3. Lord, I do not change, so you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. God says, I don't change, so that's why you keep getting more chances. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and haven't kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord. But you ask, well, how are we going to return? God says, will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you, God? He says, in tithes and offerings. Again, in your reproach to worship. How are we robbing God? He says, he says, I understand that in your world that things aren't good and you're trying to save things, you're trying to save because for a rainy day, and, and you're, you're, you're not wanting to you give up your best. He says, but, but that's not how it works. How it works is today give your best because of what God I've already done. And tomorrow, I'll bless you again. That's what God says. He says, You give your best today because of what I've already done, and then tomorrow I'm gonna meet it again. The fact of the matter is that we're blessed in all kinds of ways. One way that we probably fail to realize when it comes to apathy, one way we fail to realize that it's a blessing is is a burden. When we're blessed with a burden. We to ourselves oftentimes and tell ourselves it's easier not to care. It's easier not to get emotionally involved in other people's messes. Better not get involved. But the reality is, It's easier to hurt with a purpose than to exist without one. You know somebody who's existing without purpose? You know? We see a lot of kids today, you know, guys playing video games all day long, ladies, women, girls, scrolling on their phone, making little, you know, TikTok videos, hoping somebody's going to see see them and they're going to capture their attention. But the reality is that, that everyone wants to experience blessings. And yet God says, this is the blessing, is a burden. To have a burden for something. To, to be passionate about something, to care about something more than anything else. I mean, look in Scripture, the people who had were blessed with a burden. Think about them. Moses, let my people go. David, Goliath, who are you to come against the Lord's army? Nehemiah goes to a city broken. He says, brothers, fight for your families, fight for your families. Jesus was consumed with the fact that there were sheep that were without a shepherd. He had to go and find them. All gave themselves to something greater than themselves. All lived a blessed life, blessed with a burden. Make that your prayer this Advent season. That you would, that God would bless you with a burden this Advent. That's the message of of, of Malachi, that we'd be blessed with a burden. That's the hope. That is the hope that's found in this letter. The hope for the apathetic is a burden. It 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 may sound like it's, what? You want to give me something hard? Yeah. Because in that difficulty, in that grind, in that struggle, you will find joy. That's what God promises. Verse 13. You have spoken arrogantly against me, says the Lord. Yet, I ask, what have we said against you? Oh, my goodness, this is one. You have said it is futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out his requirements? And are going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty. Why? Why? God says we get nothing out of it. He says, "He says maybe you didn't say these words, but your lives speak clearly. That's what he's telling the people. He's like, your lives tell me that, that you don't care because you're not invested. You're not involved, he says. You're pointing fingers at everybody else instead of being a part of the solution. God tells them. And this is this last one, the sixth disagreement that God has with the people. Right? This one he concludes different than all the other ones. All the other ones God had kind of gone back and forth with him, right? In this one he tells a story. And he just leaves it there. He kind of drops the mic and walks out of the room. Right? That's the way God does it in the sixth one. He says, let me tell you a story. He says, he says, actually there's a faithful gathering of people who heard these words of mine that yeah, they they, they thought about going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty, but but their hearts were awoken. And you know what they did? It says they gathered together. They gathered in my name. And a scroll of remembrance was written in the presence of those who feared the Lord and honored his name. On the day when I asked, God said, they will be my treasured possession. They will be my treasured possession. Those who got it. Those who responded. To his call. They will be my treasured possession. I will spare them just as a father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. God says, You want to defeat apathy? Find some discomfort. Find some discomfort. Because there's a day of of purifying that's coming, a day of judgment, the day of the Lord is coming. But that day can be a day of joy. That that group that were gathered there for worship were were gathered to worship God because they were joyous. Remember the law of my servant Moses, he concludes. The decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all of Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you. That great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of parents to their children and the hearts of children to their parents or else I'm going to come and strike the land with total destruction. God says, I mean, this is the last verse of the Old Testament, right before the New Testament. This is it. God says, now, apathy is not the ticket. What do you need to do? Remember the law. Be faithful to the law. That's what you need to do. I'm I'm just going to send a prophet. I'm I'm sending him. He's on his way. And when he comes, he will turn hearts. But right now, until your hearts turn, just be faithful. Do what you're supposed to do, he tells them. For us, praise be to God, He has the Spirit of God comes to turn our hearts. Right? We don't have to wait for that to come anymore. That is here already. Hope for the apathetic is here. The Spirit of God is here. All we must do is yield to Him, offer ourselves to Him. If you've done that, if you're a follower of Jesus, and okay, I've surrendered my life to Him, but but still I struggle with apathy, then you need to discover some righteous discomfort. Some righteous discomfort. What do I mean by that? I mean, well, I used to take kids on mission trips all the time, right? And I would always tell them before we left, warning, this will change your life. This will change your life. You'll never be the same. But the reality is that not everybody goes on a mission trip to go somewhere else and serve, right? No one else wants to go and be a part of the work of God in another place because we can't, right? We've got, we got life, we got work, we got bills, we got, we got things going we've got life going on. here. But serving changes you because it exposes you to a lack of righteousness. It exposes you. Whenever we serve, we see things as they really are. You don't have to go away. You can stay right here. I guarantee you that over the last 18 months when Don has been working in that elementary school that his heart has changed towards those kids. I can pretty much guarantee it. Oh, I know it has because he shared it. Why? Because he's seen something that he hadn't seen before. He's seen a need that he was blind to for a long time. But when he put himself in there, oh, my goodness. Maybe we'll hear more about that one day. I don't know he's got plan on sharing some more of that. I don't know. But when we lean into the very thing that, that makes us uncomfortable, that makes us righteously uncomfortable, God meets us. So I want encourage you. The thing that makes you uncomfortable, the thing you see in the world that's, that's not right, lean into it. Embrace it. Embrace it. Invest yourself into it. And in that, our apathy will become passion. Just by, just by encountering and interacting with it. It becomes passion. Paul experienced this very thing in the New Testament church. Paul, follower of God, worshiped God to to the ultimate, right? He wrote these words in Romans chapter 9. He said, With Christ is my witness, I speak with utter truthfulness. My conscience and the Holy Spirit confirm it. My heart is filled with bitter sorrow and unending grief. For my people my Jewish brothers and sisters, I would be willing to be forever cursed, cut off from Christ, if that would save them. Paul says, I would give up everything. What's his passion? What's the what's the, the righteous the discomfort that he felt? It was that his people, the Jews, were living outside of what God had created them for. They weren't living up to what God had created them for he would give up anything if they would just know the truth when you care you can't do nothing nothing is no longer an option if you care this Advent season while we look forward to Christ's coming I pray that it's with a little fear that he's going to come and I ask so how are you doing how are my people How's my town of Rock Hall? How's my town of Fairleigh? How's my town of Chestertown? How is it? I had you there for a purpose. How you doing? Hard word. These minor prophets are full of strong words. The answer to all of it is God's grace. Grace. It's the grace of God at work in our lives. If you don't feel it, ask God to show it. God, we love you. We thank you, Lord, for your goodness. We thank you for your love and your mercy, God. We thank you that we look forward to to what you're going to do this Advent season, which you're already doing. Lord, speak to us. Show us your way that we may follow you all the days of our life. God, we love you dearly. We thank you. Lord, I recognize that there are some who are gathered here today that that may not have a relationship with you, who may not have surrendered themselves to you. And they're wondering, they're sitting here today, well, how can I get beyond this apathy if I don't have a relationship with God like this? The simple answer is that we would simply offer ourselves to you. Just surrender to you. Trust you. Trust the the saving work that Jesus did on the cross. Trusting it, believing it. Accepting it. Because Jesus says, I died for you, that you may live. We don't have to understand it. We just have to accept it. It's a gift. So for those who are gathered here today that have have grown cold in their faith, those that have never offered themselves at all, God, meet us here. Receive us in your arms of mercy. We offer ourselves to you. Forgive us of our sin. Give us new life that we can live for you. We love you. If you prayed that prayer, then welcome to the family. Merry Christmas. Amen? Amen.